Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. This is the final Grand Rounds of this academic year, and we will not re-inaugurate Medical Grand Rounds until Friday, July 8th, at the commencement of the next academic year, and I hope to see you all there. Thank you for coming today. I also want to thank the Culinary Medicine Group for delivering today's breakfast. I hope that you had a chance to sample what was going on outside the door here. Um, we're delighted to have Wes Ely with us today from Vanderbilt. He'll be introduced to you in just a moment. And I wanted you to know that he has reported that he has had a conflict of interest potential with Abbott Laboratories, Orion Laboratories, and Hospital Pharmaceutical. This was reviewed by an independent peer process here, and there are no seen conflicts of interest for this um, delivery of this lecture. Let me tell you about Jeff Munson just for a moment. We'll introduce Wes. Jeff is an assistant professor of medicine and of the Dartmouth Institute. He is the chief of the section of pulmonary medicine and critical care. He is the director of the critical care fellowship. He is the director of the medical ICU. He's a lot of other things, including bon vivant, great gentleman, humanist. Jeff, come and tell us about your colleague, Wes. Thanks, Rich. Um, it really is a great pleasure to introduce Wes Ely. Um, I would say in the critical care community, no introduction would be necessary, given that this is not the critical care community. I set out to read his CV. I started on Monday. I stopped after about chapter seven. I just couldn't get all the way through it. Um, Wes really is a remarkable individual. Um, he began his training pathway at Tulane in his hometown, uh, where he did his undergraduate, his MD, and his MPH degree. He then went on to residency at Wake Forest for doing fellowship in pulmonary critical care medicine. He threw on an extra six months to do lung transplantation before joining the faculty at Vanderbilt, where he is now a professor of medicine with tenure in the Department of Medicine and also the associate director of research at the VA Tennessee Valley Healthcare System, where he splits his critical care time between the VA and Vanderbilt. Um, I think it's safe to say uh, Wes really has been a pioneer in advancing our understanding of the cognitive impact of critical illness on our patients. And through his work as a trialist, he has not only developed a tool to measure ICU delirium, which is now used internationally, but through his work and the work of his colleagues has also developed a pathway through which we can actually intervene on the cognitive impairment uh, as part of our daily practice. It, it probably isn't an overstatement to say that he and his colleagues are revolutionizing the way we practice critical care medicine, and that's why we've asked him to come here today. His work has resulted in more than 250 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters and innumerable awards that one couldn't possibly summarize. So it really is a great pleasure to introduce Wes Ely. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Well, he was bad. I told him just to tell you that there was a hit from Tennessee here with a toothpick on in his mouth who was going to talk to you for a few minutes, but he, uh, he didn't do that. My name is Wes. It's really a privilege to be here today. It's an exciting time to be at Dartmouth. There's some amazing things going on right here in the institution and at your surrounding hospitals in New Hampshire that are going to do a much better job for patients in upcoming years and decades, which will be a great legacy for all of you here who have gone into the vocation of healthcare and been drawn to the service of other people to maximize human
human dignity, to reduce human suffering, and really to preserve self-worth in people who are sick and, and uh, clamoring for a way out of their injury and illness. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I will tell you that uh, the, the hick thing that I told him to say was, is only kind of partially in jest. I'm from Louisiana, and I, I now live in Tennessee. My wife is a New Jersey girl who went to MIT, so I got classed up a bit with all of that. <laughs> She's very smart, got me through med school, thank goodness. Um, but, you know, there, were, there, were tr there was trouble going on in the Ford trucks. People were dying in these trucks, and in 48 states, they, they borrowed the black box idea from planes, and they put the black box in these trucks to see what was happening right prior to the time of death. And in 48 states, it was, oh, crap. But in two states, Tennessee and Louisiana, my home states, it was, hey, Bubba, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> so I, I'm doing my best today. I've got a tie on. I'm really trying to class the joint up a bit, but... Well, we need, to, we need to suspend what we think we know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to talk today by juxtaposing two stories. Uh, I like to poke fun at myself and the way I mess things up. I have made so many mistakes in my life as a physician and as a physician scientist. So here is me as an intern in the 90s when I was training. I'll never forget her. Her name was Teresa Martin. She was a woman who tried to commit suicide. She took tricyclic overdose. She came into my ICU. I was the doctor to take care of her. At the time when bad ARDS occurs and you get aspiration pneumonia and stiff lungs, we would do inverse ratio ventilation. We would think that we were doing the right thing by paralyzing you, sedating you, keeping you tied down until you got better, not knowing how sick we were making you and hurting your body. By the time we finished with Teresa Martin, there's seats up here and feel free to come up here, it's no biggie. Um, by the time we finished with Teresa, she had so much muscle damage and, and nerve damage and weakness and cognitive dysfunction. I remember trying to move her in the bed several weeks into this ICU stay and we couldn't move her, her arms and legs. And we called the physical therapist, and they suggested we get an x-ray. Is it x-ray of her joints? I mean, she's young. She, what's the big deal? And so we did, and she had myositis ossific hands. She had calcification of her muscles and joints due to immobility. And we ruined her life. She survived, but the things that we had done to her had, had made that occur. Uh, juxtapose that with a patient I just had who was a physical therapist, uh, actually a physiatrist, a physician, in charge of our physiatry in Nashville at the VA. And he came in with pulmonary fibrosis. This was just about a month ago. And his wonderful family was all around him. He was profoundly delirious due to hypoxemia, sedation. And uh, please, I, I can see you standing. I know you're a great intern because I watched you around yesterday. Coming up here to the front somewhere, you can sit anywhere you wish. You are the queen bee, is in, in my opinion. Quite a doctor you have there. While we're clapping, let's let's applaud Miriam Dowling and uh, Josh. Uh, and excuse me, uh, well, Josh was amazing as well, but also David Donnelly, who just finished the fellowship here. Miriam is now an amazing person here. She's doing a great job. Okay, so anyway, the second guy is, is very delirious. He's, he's dying of pulmonary fibrosis, hypoxemic, locked on the ventilator, and we instituted what I'm about to teach you, this A2F bundle. 
We implemented very aggressively. The whole goal of this thing is reduction of oversedation, preservation of brain function, et cetera. His delirium cleared in two days, and that's an anecdote, but we have about a 25% reduction hospital-wide and, and, and actually countrywide in our network of hospitals doing our NIH, NIH ongoing trials. Anyway, his delirium cleared. He was able to tell me at the bedside via writing, Doc, get the monks. He was Buddhist. Uh, I have deep respect for his Buddhist tradition, and I found out what he meant to me. He told me the Bur Birmingham monks, he had three Buddhist monks that were his spiritual directors down in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I got in touch with them. We got the Buddhist monks up there, and I have this incredible picture, I, I should have put it in here, of, of, of the doctor in his bed with his family around and these three monks with these beautiful orange uh, drapes on there to, to minister to him his spiritual needs, his requests in his dying days. So the juxtaposition is one person who's going to survive with a terribly hampered and dismantled life and another man who's dying clear of thought, able to communicate this most important aspect of his dying wish. So this is what we're after, folks. We're after doing whatever we can to make the best dying process, if that's the, the journey our patient's on, or make the best possible survival for our critically ill patients if their, if their uh, long-term outcome is going to be survival. The beds in the country are this, flat. There's not an increase in number of beds in the United States, but the number of critical care beds is rising like crazy. So what's increasing is the number of, of ICU beds you have in your hospital. We just had this discussion up here. And what we have to do is revamp the way that we care for those critically ill patients. So one more thing before we get started, I have, uh, I want to read to you, Jeff and I just discussed this yesterday, Tao Te Ching, to bring up another Buddhist thing, and I'm cradle Catholics here, so I'm really loving the Buddhist tradition this morning. The ancient masters didn't try to educate the people, but taught them to not know. When they think they know the answers, people are difficult to guide. When they know that they don't know, people can find their way. So what I'm going to ask you to do here is suspend what you think you know about critical care. Put on a let me learn, let me pay attention, let me listen hat, and I've been listening to you for three days now, I've been here since Wednesday, and I've learned a tremendous amount. And I'm going to take you through what really has become a new frontier in critical care. I've been lucky enough to be a part of this story, and, uh, and I'm going to tell you a brief a bit about it. We've uh, made these disclosures already once today, in addition to these continuing medical education programs I've done, which have been sponsored by these groups. I do not have stock in these companies or care if you use their products. I'm also federally funded by the NIH and the VA. We have two very large multi-center randomized controlled trials that I designed ongoing in the United States and, and another large cohort study. And I'm also the author of these PAD guidelines I'm about to tell you about. I'm going to go kind of quickly because I want to make sure we cover ground and leave a lot of time for questions. Uh, keep me on track here, and we get to about 15 till, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and take your questions. These SAG guidelines were published in 2002. They were incomplete in terms of their ability to teach us about safety and patient comfort. We completed the guidelines with a delirium piece a decade later, and we reviewed over 20,000 manuscripts to generate these guidelines. They're now being reviewed every third year and redone. The next version will be called the PAD-ES guidelines for pain, agitation, delirium, 
early mobility and sleep. So if you wanted to say what is the modern day focus of safety and comfort in the ICU, it's let's treat our patient's pain, make sure they're not anxious and sedated and over-sedated, and, and we handle delirium, which is absolutely a form of suffering, and then mobilize them, early mobility, and sleep, take care of their sleep, because we think that's contributing, the absence of it is contributing a large degree to their suffering. So these are these guidelines, they're widely available, but they're very difficult to sort through. 500 manus 500 references, it's a tome, it's a super thick manuscript. You can't navigate it easily. So in order to deal with that and to help places like Dartmouth to implement these guidelines, we have watched over the past 10 years as the literature has come out and helped us to evolve, to develop, and to then study a bundle of care. And this new bundle of care that essentially is the way to implement these guidelines is called the A2F guidelines, or the ABCDEF guidelines. I'll review it with you, I'll lay it out there, and I hope you understand it. But before that, let's define the public health problem we're here to talk about. 50 to 70% of people leaving critical care leave with an acquired dementia on the scale of AD or TBI. The majority of them also leave with a neck down muscle and nerve disease which makes them unable to go around and do the things that they used to do. This is a profound myositis and neuropathy that people develop while they are immobilized in the ICU. So one of the real dangers of what we were talking about yesterday as we rounded in the ICU of the patients being sedated and tied down is the Teresa Martin story I just told you a moment ago, although that's a worst case scenario. And what the people can't do after we care for them is go on and be the matriarch or patriarch of their family, do their hobbies and their work. And I told a story two nights ago here of a Dartmouth patient that after being managed here, uh, I don't know exactly where she got her surgery, but she said that originally at one point she had she got her surgery somewhere else. She got bariatric, bariatric surgery. Then she eventually developed purple sepsis. This was not in this hospital. Um, and then she wrote to me to say, I'm all survived now, but my I can't do my job, and my boss wants to fire me. He sent me to my doctor to get a note. The doctor said, you're fine, you are not, you're not on a ventilator anymore. You came in with ARDS and sepsis, and that's over, so I don't know what you want me to write the note about. You see, the doctors don't know that there is a PICS syndrome, a post-intensive care syndrome, P-I-C-S. And this PICS is what is massively dis creating a dysfunctional life for these patients. So people write things like this. After five months, I felt better, returned to work, but was fired. I couldn't organize my work. I committed many errors. I lost things, did not manage my time well. People talk about how difficult their time management is. People talk about wanting to commit suicide. In this particular case, the guy was about to, he felt isolated. His wife of 36 years said he was feeling sorry for himself. He nearly ended his life. We've had many patients commit suicide from PICS. It is not just due to, to a clinical depression either. The patients are developing about 7 to 10% of post-traumatic stress disorder. About 30% are developing major depression. And those two psychiatric diseases are layered on top of the much more prominent circumstance of cognitive impairment. So to put some numbers to this, some data, this is a paper that I published in JAMA a few years ago with Jack Awashina. And if you just look at the gold bars, you can see moderate to severe cognitive impairment prior to sepsis 
and then after sepsis. And prior to sepsis, you see that they, these numbers are one-third as high as the rate of moderate to severe cognitive impairment one to three years after sepsis. This is the NIH's health and retirement study data, which we mined to get this information. At this time, we did not have delirium data, so we couldn't understand the relationship between delirium in the ICU and the long-term cognitive impairment afterwards, so we set up a cohort study to try and understand this. The first thing that we had done, though, was we created a tool that we could use to measure delirium in the ICU. The tool is called the CAM-ICU, the Confusion Assessment Method for the ICU. It takes about 30 seconds at the bedside. Essentially, the cardinal feature, just to make sure everybody in here walks out knowing what the cardinal feature of delirium is, it's not hallucinating, it's not delusions, it's inattention. If your patient can't do this, Mr. Smith, squeeze my hands. Now, Mr. Smith, squeeze my hands every time I say the letter A. Okay? Yes, he's nodding. He's intubated. Can't talk. Okay. S, A, V, E, A, H, A, A, R, T. So, you see, I had him for a second. And then after about three, four, or five seconds, out. No ability to pay attention. We lost the command. If he can get eight out of ten letters right, that is a sensitive and specific barometer of delirium. If he gets less than eight out of ten, that is the cardinal feature of delirium. There's a little more to the delirium test than that, but that's for all intents and purposes, what you're trying to do is figure out, can your patient pay attention? We've got tools now that you talked to me about yesterday called the B-CAM, the brief CAM, which is usable for the floor. One of the things your hospital wants to do is, is, is measure patients who are developing delirium in the non-ICU setting to reduce hospital staff injury. One of your task forces now, you've had a, a rash of some staff injuries due to delirious patients hurting and, and that sort of thing. So you could, you could measure that at the bedside with a very simple tool called the B-CAM, which, which is highly sensitive and specific for delirium as well in the non-ICU setting. You use these tools to measure for delirium and it ends up being a striking predictor of mortality. We published this paper in JAMA in 2004. There have now subsequently been in the probably about 20 papers range showing that delirium is an independent predictor of mortality. As you go up on the x-axis in number of days of delirium, you go up on the y-axis and the hazard ratios for the likelihood of dying. And this is after adjusting for severity of illness and gender and race and age and comorbidities, et cetera. So we developed this brain ICU cohort. This was a $5 million NIH grant, which enrolled about 800 patients in the ICU. One of the papers we published was this one in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what we did was we found a cohort of patients, all from medical or surgical ICUs. Only 6% had any detectable baseline cognitive dysfunction. So this is not a group of demented patients at all. And it spanned the spectrum of 25 to 100 years old. And after their ICU experience was over, and we had measured all the covariates on the front end that we wanted, we then took them into an in-person, in one and a half to two hour long evaluation with neuropsychological testing. 
And I told you it based on only 6% dementia, uh, not dementia, but any cognitive impairment, no dementia was excluded. And you can see that above 65 years old, the patients are nowhere near normal. In fact, they're way down here around these bars, which are for traumatic brain injury level of cognitive dysfunction and Alzheimer's disease. And if you go to the younger cohort, which, uh, which we didn't expect to have as profound of a problem, but yet you see they're still hovering around TBI and AD. The, the editor for the New England Journal said to me, well, Wes, what about the really young people? I mean, 30, 40-year-olds, are they getting this problem? So we created the exact same graph with a yet another column. These are 30 and 40-year-old patients. And look at this. They're all the way down here still around where the older patients are. You can see this traumatic brain injury line going straight through the uh, lower quartiles of these patients with the medians hovering around there and nowhere near the normal range that these 30 and 40 year old people should be de demonstrating cognitively. Really, the straw and the camel's back here came with the next question of the editor for the New England Journal who said to me, well, Wes, we're, we're both Beeson scholars. Uh, she was a, a Beeson scholar years ago, so I've, I've known her for a long time. She said, well, Wes, but maybe these young people just came in with a lot of comorbidity. And so I said, well, that's a good uh, question, Mary Beth, Mary Beth Hamill. I can, I can test that. We hadn't done this graph at that time. So we had Charleston comorbidity scores. On the bottom here, you have baseline comorbidity a lot, baseline comorbidity medium, and then up in the top row, baseline comorbidity nothing. No previous illness, come all the way over to the top left. So these are 30 and 40 year old individuals with no prior diseases or illnesses who happen to get something like a bad community acquired pneumonia, come in the hospital and get severely septic. And look at there one year later, they're still down here around TBI. Super worrisome. 2,000 media outlets picked this up and said, whoa, who knew? We had a decade earlier learned that people post-cabbage ended up with problems. People called it pump head. There have now been randomized controlled trials of cabbage on cabbage, off, on pump, off pump. It wasn't the pump. There have been lots of studies into ORs thinking anesthesia is it. That's not it. It's really what we have in common in the ICU that's the circumstance. In fact, um, I think about noses. An old G.K. Chesterton uh, analogy with noses was, was that human noses come in all different shapes and sizes. They all come in all different colors. But what they have in common is way more similar than anything that they have that is disparate. They all have the same structure and function. That is the truth about the ICU is what we're learning. Now 15 years, 20 years into this research, what we're learning is it doesn't matter if it's the cardiovascular ICU, the surgical ICU, the burn, the trauma, the medical, uh, the neuro. All of these patients succumb to, at a very high rate, acute brain dysfunction in the form of delirium. My brain, if my end is a, is a brain totem pole, this is normal, but you have coma and delirium down here. We tend to pay attention when it's, del when it's coma, and it worries us, although we, we kind of ignore it when we did it. If we iatrogenically created the coma, we somehow think that's okay. It's not. Then they come out of the coma into a delirium, and that we have completely ignored, traditionally calling it ICU psychosis, as if, oh, don't worry, Grandma, we created this. This happens to everybody in the ICU. It's no big deal. But everything we're learning says that this is a big deal. In fact, from our New England Journal paper, delirium was the most striking predictor of this long-term cognitive problem. If you see delirium duration on the x-axis here, you can see what happens with cognitive function one year later on the y-axis. And this is after adjusting 
for how sick you were and after adjusting for how old you were. So this is the thing that we need to start paying attention to. It's a great barometer of injury, and we have a lot that we can do when our patients are delirious to try and reduce the duration. Our CT scans that we did and our MRIs showed that people who had more delirium ended up with a greater picture of atrophy here. This is a, we measured this quantitatively with a ventricle to brain ratio, mathematically, and basically the larger the ventricle, the less the brain. And these patients with delirium had a lot more, a lot more, uh, a lot higher VBRs, ventricle to brain ratios, than did the patients who didn't have delirium. I've been doing some PET studies. This is a, a, a floor beta pier F18 amyloid ligand, which binds to amyloid. In this, uh, in this scan here, you can see just four examples of anecdotes from a study we've just recently completed. And what you see here is a pres preservation of gray-white matter in this bottom right image uh, excuse me, a, a loss of, uh, of gray-white matter down here. So this is the abnormal scan. This is the abnormal scan, and you have a loss of gray-white matter. Let's compare it to preservation of gray-white matter here, meaning that this patient is, has a lot of amyloid. And when you have a lot of amyloid, you, you, your ligand with F18 becomes abnormal, and you lose the gray-white. What I'm showing you on purpose is that three-fourths of these examples, and this is true for the entire cohort that we did, didn't have a lot of amyloid on the back end and yet had cognitive impairment. So this gives me great hope for the circumstance that maybe these brains are what I call get-backable. Maybe we can get this back. Maybe through some cognitive rehabilitation, through brain exercises, like you rehab your bicep, we can get these people back. It's not necessarily an Alzheimer's pathology that we're dealing with. And as we all know, the literature for, the Alzheimer's, for Alzheimer's studies is just replete with examples of failed studies. And so what we want is a hopeful type of dementia that we might be able to intervene on. And I think with this critical care dementia, we have found something that, we, that this might occur for. And we're doing, we're designing right now randomized control trials of, of very, uh, very, very cool cognitive rehabilitation using computer games to try and see what happens when we randomize these patients. People all over the world are studying this. This is just one example of a thousand patients enrolled in a cohort study in the Netherlands. And you can see here on the bottom, bottom bullet, delirium independent predictor of mild and severe cognitive impairment or long-term cognitive impairment at one year. So a tripling of the risk of long-term cognitive impairment. Now this delirium thing, since the front end, so here's my hand, this is the ICU stay, this is the life after the ICU stay, and what we're saying is what can we do here in the hospital to deal with the delirium to either prevent it or shorten it that might then decrease the burden of the problem afterwards? Well the first thing is if you don't look you won't find. You won't find this if you don't look because it is quiet delirium. This is not yanking out lines and tubes. This is a little old lady sitting in a bed, minding her own business, who you say, are you breathing okay? Your eyes are open. Are you, are you getting enough air? Are you in any pain? She's nodding her head, yes or no. And you think this is okay. She has no idea what you're saying. She's completely inattentive. She can't follow the commands. If you had to do that hand squeezing thing I showed you, she's out. Um, she would squeeze on the word hand, by the way. I and mean, she'd squeeze on the word squeeze. Miss, Miss Jones, squeeze. Every time I say the letter A, why don't you squeeze? And she squeezes on squeeze. It's kind of a deeper down in the head thing. But she can't follow the command. <laughs> and oftentimes it's a pitfall for nurses because they'll say, well, 
I couldn't assess him. She wouldn't follow the command. Yeah, that's the whole point. She's inattentive. Don't, don't tell me you know, that she couldn't do the test. Tell me that she failed the test. So you have to do the test. You're implementing this here. Uh, Dr. Munson will tell you, you're not where you want to be. You're going to get there. I, I told everybody yesterday, I feel like you've got a, a 747 on the tarmac with the engines on, ready to hit the go switch. You're all set up here. You have all the right professionals. You have all the passion, all the knowledge. And now you're just going to organize your systems, and you're going to be off and running. In the next year or so, I think you're going to find that critical care here is going to get a lot more fun. Because this is a lot more fun when you interact with people and you know that you're doing the right thing for them. Okay? So let me stop there for a second, by the way, and play you a video, which I think might teach us all something. Uh, we'll, we'll see if this resonates with four minutes. If it's going to come up. Okay. My brain changed um, incredibly. You know, I've been through chemo brain and gone back to work, and, and it was, you know, I was not quite as quick with things, but it really didn't hamper me to a disabling level. This stay and everything that I went through did. We do, we do a lot of lists, we do a lot of whiteboard, like just right over there on the, the wall where it's, we're going to do this first and then we're going to do this. I've lost all sense of internal time, so I can't um, gauge how long it's going to take to do anything. She's very intelligent. There's a sense at times that it's inside her and she's wanting to get out what she's thinking but it's not lining up. It's almost like it's running in jelly in, instead of oil. Somebody's like, why can't, you know, they have that look on, you know, I just told you my name, you're asking me again. I'll laugh and say, well, I, you know, I got really sick of my belt and we're kind of melted. You know, because now my short-term memory just doesn't stick. I'm still not um, back up to uh, the strength level that I was before I got sick. Not because I haven't had enough time, but primarily because part of what came along with the after effects were um, a clinical depression and, uh, you know, I've been diagnosed with PTFPT. I don't know what happened. If you don't hear the rest of it, it's okay, but let me see if you can get, oh, I don't know why I did that. I want you to hear the last thing she says. Well, maybe not. Okay, so what she says in the end is that, no, I'm not going to do that. Let me, let's, let's see if I can get, it to, get to it. I want you to hear her last comment. Yeah, I told you that I can't. Oh, hold on. Challenging than, than, than I mean, than even cancer. If you present me with arts and cancer, Right. Seriously? Never heard anybody say that before. That was a game changer for me when uh, when she said that. This is on our website, by the way. If you want to hear anything about this, go anywhere. Just it's just icudelirium.org. People misspell delirium. I bought about ten different URLs misspelling delirium. <laughs> they all redirect to the same website. It's hilarious. 
things you learn about GoDaddy. <laughs> Wish I'd had that idea. Um, but this is a website. It's uh, one of my favorite things about the website is that it, it, there's a there's a medical professional portal. And there's a patient and family portal, and there and, and if you get the medical professional portal, you can read all about the the A B C D E F bundle, um, and if you get the patient and family portal, you can get the, you can get the, uh, the the testimonials. So that's that's a pretty neat thing. Check it out. Let me just take um, 10, 15 minutes left, and then we're gonna have plenty of time for questions. If that's, is that about right for timing wise? Uh, to, to share with you data about the bundle that I think you need to know. So 10,000 foot view, what are we talking about here? We're talking about on the left, a, a system, uh, an awareness of ways people suffer and a guideline that addressed it. In the middle, we're talking about psychometrically valid and reliable tools by which we can measure those elements of suffering. So those are the tools that we graded and psychometrically held muster by which to measure pain and agitation and delirium. There was only two in each group. It wasn't designated that we would pick two. It's just that only two were above 15 out of 20 points. And then we said, well, how do we do this? And what happened was, in a nutshell, and the history is, the, is outlined on our on our website, but, but essentially what happened was none of this was going on. We were just paralyzing, sedating the hell out of everybody, basically. And in 1996, I did a paper when I was a chief resident, which was in the New England Journal of Medicine, that, that, that defined SBT, spontaneous breathing trials. Then a few years later, a guy named J.P. Kress at, at University of Chicago did a study that was in the New England Journal doing daily sedation vacations. And after reading tipping point by Malcolm Gladwell, I thought, well, that's not sticky. I'm going to rename his thing to a sedation, to a spontaneous awakening trial, to keep it like spontaneous awakening trial, spontaneous breathing trial, step A, step B. And then I decided we would do an RCT to test both of them together versus just the SPTs. And that became the ABC study, the awakening breathing co coordination uh, study. And that was published in Lancet. So then we had the ABCs. Then I thought, well, we're doing a lot of work on, on drugs, choice of drugs, that starts with C. Uh, we published about seven JAMA papers on different types of drug approaches in the ICU. And so then it was the ABC squared, <laughs> choice of drug and coordination between nurses and therapists. Then we were doing all the delirium work, so that was easy. And then the E was, and the e was a Schweikert paper that came out in Lancet. It said that if you early mobilize patients in the ICU, and early is one to two days into the unit not seven to eight days into the unit, okay? And if you randomize patients, one to two day mobilization versus seven to eight day, they are much more likely to, to walk, to march, to leave, to go to home rather than a nursing home, and they had halved their delirium rates. So we threw the E on board, okay? Then what happened historically was the guy who invented Intel, whose name is Gordon Moore, the Intel computer chips, he got delirious and sick in an ICU, and it was horrible. And his family wasn't around, and he hated it, and he said to the Society of Critical Care Medicine, I understand you have these delirium guidelines, I will give you a grant, I've, I'm a billionaire, I have money, I will give you a grant if you make this better. And, but by the way, it stinks that they didn't incorporate my family into my care, at a very fancy hospital out in California, by the way. And, um, and so I want you to do family. And I said, well, F comes after E, we're done. This is good, A, A through F. Not going to Z here. 
And so that, that's how the A to F bundle came about. Only other thing that we had to tweak was that the queens of pain, Kathleen Pantillo and Celine Gelinas, who came up with the, the C-pot there, they were mad that pain wasn't explicitly mentioned. I said, no, we always deal with pain first. And they said, well, prove it to me. So we made the A, uh, let me see if I've got it here. Uh, this, this is what we did nationally. We set up the collaborative. We had three hubs around the country. We applied, people applied from all over the country. You're one of these H's. You have been taking part in this ICU liberation collaborative around the country, about 75 hospitals. We've even incorporated 10 pediatric ICUs. The, the kids are not to be left out of this approach. And then around the country, we, we set this up, and the bundle came about, and we changed, the, we changed SAT and SBT to B for both SATs and SBTs, and A is Assess, Prevent, Manage Pain. Wasn't that slick? And uh, you got to work with this stuff, you know? But anyway, the, I was stunned. When this happened, people started saying, well, you know, this is all so warm and fuzzy. Isn't that great? You made it into the alphabet. We did not make this. The literature made this. If I sh this, is, this is about 200 peer-reviewed references. Lots of them, New England Journal, JAMA, and Lancet. This was not just an invention. The scientists from all over the world did the studies that created this bundle, 100%. And uh, it, it really is doing something which I will then close by showing you the evidence behind it. I'm not going to show you the individual studies. So I'm not going to show you the studies at Payne or the ABC trial or, or you know, the New England Journal JAMA paper. I'm not going to show you the individual ones. You can pull them or I can share the references with you later if you want. But what I'm going to show you is once you put it into a bundle, what does it do as a bundle together? So I'm going to give you a quick clinical run through and then I'm going to give you a quick literature review and then we'll be done and I'll take your questions, okay? We'll do it in five minutes. This is my patient, necrotizing fasciitis of her face. Profound problem. We took off about half her face. She has these drains in her eyes, etc. She's beautiful now. She's lived. We, we implemented the ABCDEF bundle. Easier just to say the A to F bundle. And the day that she was extubated, after having bilateral, completely whited out lungs and going through all this, the day she was extubated, this is her just walking up and down the hallway with her Lone Ranger mask on. The only reason that she is doing that is because of aggressive physical therapy and aggressive nursing care and not allowing her to lay in the bed and get those, those calcified joints I told you about with Teresa Martin. This is my liver transplant patient waiting his liver with bilateral infiltrates, unable to come off the ventilator, texting his kids while his wife looks on. Human, right? This is a guy who's deaf I showed this picture two nights ago. He's sign languaging to his nurse, who just happened at Vanderbilt to also know sign language. Her grandfather was deaf, and he taught her to sign when she was little. Um, Ellen is her name. And you can see on the far right, he's intubated, and they're just sitting there talking. Now, when you have these awake and alert patients, sometimes it will create some aggressive behavior on the part of the patients. I, I actually, in addition to the hand squeezing, I, one of the other CAM ICU commands I say is, hey, hold up this many fingers. And they do that, and they say, now do the same thing with the other hand. And it's a, it's a measure of organization of thinking. So, okay, two, other hand. And I call this the Richard Nixon. And uh, so I, I say, hold up this many fingers. And sometimes, you know, you're going to get a response. <laughs> that one. Uh, so this actually happened. I'm very quick with my iPhone. Um, 
But, uh, but that's okay. I'd rather have that than have them be delirious and not know what's going on. So what have people done? They've implemented the bundle. They've reduced benzodiazepine use. That has led to reductions in, in delirium. They have uh, led to a couple of, a year and a half long co co you know, uh, cohort study before and after at uh, Nebraska. And we saw dramatic improvements in the time alive and off of mechanical ventilation. This graph you could superimpose onto the most famous study ever done in ARDS, which was 6 versus 12 cc's per kg, turned out to be the exact same margin of improvement with the intervention. And so the ABCDF bundle is landing the types of improvements we see with other scientific uh, investments specific to the physiology that got them in the hospital in the first place. This is a, it also showed reductions in delirium. It showed improvements in mobility. We showed reductions in, in death rates. We've seen a very consistent 10 to 15% absolute reduction, ARR, absolute risk reduction, in death at one year, three months, however it's been measured. I'm going to show you the most striking survival data in just a minute from a study that we now have under review for publication. But this is even independent of other things like severity of illness, comorbidities, on or off vent, age, etc. You still see that the bundle itself cuts delirium in half and doubles the likelihood of mobility. At Hopkins, they've shown dramatic reductions in delirium and coma. Um, and this was Indiana. In Indiana, they showed down, uh, coma down by 6%, delirium down by 11% in the third and fourth bullets there. This is a super neat study, the CDC. Uh, you know, you're thinking infections and that sort of thing. Um, the CDC partnered with Mike Klompas, an ID doc at Harvard, to do a grant of many centers around the country in which they proved that the bundle reduced ventilator-associated events and infection-related ventilator-associated complications by 35 and 65%. As compared to the eight ICUs that didn't have the bundle, they had no delta. So we're getting some really neat data in this regard. This is the famous Keystone Collaborative in Michigan. And what they found with, with 51 hospitals in Michigan, those that implemented the SATs and delirium screening, and this is right where you are here at Dartmouth right now, you're just about to do the SAT business. When you did them both together, you were three and a half times more likely to exercise your patients. You gotta wake them up. And you've got to monitor them for the delirium. And if they aren't delirious, get them walking to prevent them from getting delirium. And if they are delirious, walk them to reduce their delirium. So the delirium doesn't tell you if you should walk them or not, but it gives you a barometer of where are we starting with our brain disease here. So they concluded, this is another layer of evidence that for the A to E bundle before the F was added, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so this is the last study I'll show you, uh, and then a few, few close-up slides. These are data from a 15-month experience that we conducted at Sutter in California, 6,000 patients. And what you see on this graph, look at the bottom first. Note that this is adjusted for age, Apache 2, and on or off vent. Seven Cali California hospitals. And what we did was we, we did a quality improvement initiative across these hospitals. And this is non-ivory tower circumstance. And what we found was that whether you measured mortality or delirium and coma, mortality on the left, delirium coma on the right, you had an improvement in survival, an improvement in survival shown by this line for every 10% increase in the bundle compliance. 
So we actually measured the dose of compliance in the study and then did a multivariable analysis to adjust for these covariates that could have been the reason that these, this mortality was improved. And they, independent of those things, the bundle led to more survival. And it led to more freedom from delirium and coma. So again, coma, delirium, normal. Freedom from delirium and coma is a delirium coma free day. You want more delirium coma free days, this represents a rise in days of normality. Super neat data. In fact, what I thought was, was really interesting, I thought, you know, if we do this and there's a bunch of palliative care patients, they would water down the effect of the intervention. Don't you think? Because they're, they're on their way to dying, so it may not be as successful in the palliative care patients. So when we looked at it, all patient comers, we saw a 7 and 15% uh, improvement in, uh, in survival. If you remove them, it's even better. 12 and 23% improvements in survival for every 10% increase in, in compliance. Now, when you have delirium, what do you do about it? Uh, the, the knee jerk is to add a drug. That's not the right answer. We're doing a, a study right now with, at these sites around the country to understand the role of adding antipsychotics for a delirious patient. We don't know the answer. We're over 500 people into this randomized controlled trial. But I think the right answer first is to, if you say my patient's CAM positive, then I say let's run a differential diagnosis. Let's do the Dr. Dre, for example. Diseases, drug removal, environment. And you think through what diseases could be creating this thing, sepsis, CHF, COPD, what drugs should be removed, and what environmental things, eyeglasses, hearing aids, get them out of the bed, sleep, day, night, that's the stuff to do. And by doing that across our studies, we have reduced delirium from 75% in our units down to just below 50%. It's a pretty big deal difference. Now, you still got half your patients getting delirium, so it's still a public health problem, and you're still going to have a lot of long-term cognitive impairment on the back end. This is the ICU in the uh, 1970s at UCSF, walking the patients. We don't do that much these days, but now this is the resurgence of, of a therapy here. We have a protocol at Vanderbilt called the MOVE, and we will move our patient as long as they follow these criteria. As long as they are myocardially stable, their oxygenation is stable, their vasopressors are at a minimal level and not increasing, and they're able to engage to voice, drug off, responding to verbal. Then we're going to get them out of the bed. That's our, that's our objective criteria, and that's the minimum criteria. We push that sometimes. We also are aggressively moving the brain with cognitive rehabilitation. This is an ICU patient doing a jumble, a word jumble in the ICU. We're doing, I call this Sudoku Scrabble brain exercises. I'll tell you more about that later. But our first pilot, you can see that at the time of hospital discharge, patients were the same. After 12 weeks of an aggressive intervention, you see that we had an improvement in the intervention group. And so just to bring it to a close, I'll, I'll close with this story and then take your questions. Uh, so this is, uh, this is Jiro. You know him? Jiro is the greatest sushi chef in the world. Nobody disputes this. this is, who's seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi? It's great, isn't it? So a lot of people up in New Hampshire need to go rent that on Netflix tonight. It's a great book. He, it's a, it's, a, it's a, been a lifelong mission for him to perfect sushi. He, my daughter said, Daddy, I've got three daughters, um, one's at Notre Dame, no, no Dartmouth, one, one's at Notre Dame, one's at Emory, one's at Tulane. 
Uh, my wife wanted to go to Dartmouth all her life. That's all she wanted to do. She couldn't get in. <laughs> MIT took her, but you know, Dartmouth wouldn't take her. Um, but anyway, uh, in fact, when, when my daughter was a soccer player, when she was, my, my, my wife's dream was to have somebody go to Dartmouth. So we brought up her three times for soccer camps. She ended up deciding to go to a southern school anyway. She went to Emory. But so Dartmouth has been near and dear in our family's heart for many years. Um, anyway, that same daughter, asked me, Daddy, I want you to watch this sushi movie with me. And uh, so I did. And uh, I learned all about Jiro and his passion and his ability to perfect things. And, and uh, the next month, I got asked to go to Japan. And it was the Jap Japanese Critical Care Society. And I said, well, have I got a deal for you. I will come if you take me to this restaurant. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I said, no, it's in, a, it's in a subway, but it's Michelin three star. But it's in a subway. So they said, well, we'll see what we can do. So I get there. I, I land in Narita, go get out. And they said, well, the only thing we can get is right now. So we're going to take you to this restaurant. So we go to the subway. And I go down this escalator. And I'm, my heart was beating like crazy. I was like tachycardic. And I, I thought, am I actually going to see this guy? Because I, I am so enthralled by seeing anybody do anything to this degree of perfection. I mean, soccer, sushi, you name it. And so I walk in, and there he is. He's standing behind me. I'm like, oh, my gosh. There's Jiro. And, uh, and so I sat down, just me and the one other guy, two people in the whole restaurant. That's it. And he starts serving us the sushi. I'm about the third piece, first piece he gives me, and I reached up with my southpaw to grab with my chopsticks, and he spun around like this. Oh my God, what's go what did I do? He, and his son goes, no, 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 no. He didn't know you were left-handed. He, he apologizes. Every other piece of sushi was, was angulated perfectly from my left hand. Okay? So then I go, piece number seven, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is going too fast. There's 18 pieces. And I, I slow down. And, uh, and so that he starts spinning again. Like, oh my gosh, what did I do this time? And, uh, and he says, no, no, no. You have to eat it right now. You're waiting too long. It's going to be one degree temperature off of the perfect temperature for that piece of sushi. Whoa. So, uh, so I did. I ate it right then. And we finished the whole thing. I'm thinking, this is the greatest meal I've ever had in my life. No question. I don't care how much it costs. Um, <laughs> Anyway, about, about three quarters late through it, I said to the son, who you'll watch the movie and understand who this guy is, right? Uh, I said, to the, I said, can I take a picture of him? And he said, no, you can't take a. He says you can't take a picture of him, but you can take a picture of the food. And so I did, but the iPhone is very long, and it took his whole body in there. And, uh, I can't help it. And, uh, and anyway, at the end of the at the end of the at the end of the dinner at the end of the dinner, he said. Uh, he said, you know what, His, he wants to take pictures with you. So I have pictures on my phone of me and Jiro together. He's smiling. It's great. He said I could use the picture to teach with or I wouldn't have done it. But, uh, but my point is that if a person can care this much about sushi, why can't we care that much about real human beings in these beds who are suffering and we are atrogenically creating a greater disease process for them? Right? Thank you very much. So we have time for some questions. Don't be bashful. What's on your mind? Please. That was a really exciting and wonderful talk. What you've observed, how you're moving with is very powerful, but I wonder, what have you thought about the pathophysiology of what these interventions and drugs that we're doing is actually doing to the brain 
can result in this permanent decrement months or years later. Right. And there's just not enough time. I'm going to answer your question, but I don't, I've got tons of talks on that topic. But let me give you the skinny on it. I think that disease-wise, we have a disease, take sepsis, which is a thrombophilic circumstance. The microthrombi occur in the kidney and create ATN. They occur in the lung and create ARDS. They're occurring in the brain and creating delirium. Downstream from microthrombus, you're not getting good flow. So the neurons are having a big problem downstream with getting oxygen and food, basically, and they're, they're, they're having a problem. In addition to that, in addition to the neurons, you have the interstitium of the brain, the microglia, the astrocytes, and these interstitium have foot processes on them. The foot processes control water in the interstitium. The, uh, it, when those foot processes and when those astrocytes get inflamed, the microglia get primed, what you have is you have a swelling of the, of the glial cells. And you have these activated microglia, and then when, this, when they swell with water, a dehydration occurs of the interstitial space in the brain. What you had prior to that was you had an anticholinergic shield in the brain. The anticholinergic system in the brain is uh, th this cholinergic shield, I should say, this cholinergic shield is a very anti-inflammatory circumstance. So we have our own intrinsic anti-inflammatory crea circumstance created by cholinergic systems. But when it gets dehydrated, that cholinergic shield drops and in addition to that, we then start layering on drugs, which are anticholinergic, like Benadryl, or um, you know, there's tons of anticholinergic drugs in the hospital. Cholinergic depletion creates delirium. Dopamine excess creates delirium. So now I've left the microthrombi and left dehydration of, this, of the interstitium, and now I'm throwing on iatrogenesis through pharmacology. Uh, in addition to that, we create a circumstance at an inhibition a, 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 by these GABAergic drugs like um, benzodiazepines. We put on board drugs like propofol. This hits very aggressively at the VLPO in the brain. The VLPO creates an abnormal sleep pattern, so somebody's unconscious, but they're not actually getting normal sleep. We use EEGs on our patients, which we're, which we're doing very aggressively in studies right now. The, we're using the EEG as a biomarker of injury. What patients are doing up there in the ICU is they're unconscious and we are lulled into complacency thinking that they are normal. But they're unconscious not getting normal sleep. They're getting no slow wave sleep at all. And so maybe one hour a day. And that's extremely dangerous to the brain. So all of this stuff, in, in including an abnormal blood brain barrier, creates neuronal injury, uh, glial micro, micro, microglial priming, which then injures at the time of the unit and then goes on, these microglia stay primed for weeks and months to create long-standing long injury. And the interventions we're trying to put in place, we're trying to prevent any piling on of the injury that, that we have been doing atrogenically. So that's kind of whirlwind of it. Sorry, it's kind of an hour lecture, but that's some of the stuff that's happening. Please, sir. Um, I may have gotten it wrong, but there is the relative risk of um, uh, post ICUs, uh, cognitive impairment was increased. Uh, had, uh, was increased three or fourfold by the presence of delirium. Delirium. So that's not as big a number as I would have thought. So is that because a lot of post ICU cognitive impairment is occurring in people that don't have delirium, or is it? No, the, uh, in fact, there's very little cognitive impairment occurring post-ICU in people who don't have delirium. That is a three-fold increase, uh, three increase at risk of death at, uh, at six months and one year. Three-fold increase in death at six months and one year. The rate of cognitive impairment is in the neighborhood of 40-50% of of these patients leaving. So if the, if the non-delirious patients are leaving with, with relatively little in the way of increase, you're talking a much higher increase than three-fold. Yeah.
please. Thanks for your work over the years. You're welcome. Um, it was a great talk. Um, moving from lymphatics to hospital uh, administration, so out of the unit, we have this institution does not have sitters. Uh, we have patients on the floor who don't have the attention they may have in the unit who are at risk of ending up in places like methane. Because of the absence of family to be there or the absence of someone to be helping to redirect the patient, not having them get drugs instead of helping them move in the halls. We don't have an elder life program at the department just yet. Can I ask you, in your work across the country, out of the unit, what most hospitals are doing to help folks uh, with um, their recovery side of yeah, I think uh, the Elder Life Program is a program created by Sharon Inouye, who was at Yale and now is at Harvard. She's a longstanding colleague and friend of mine. And she, in fact, she helped me develop the CAMICU. Uh, that's a program that's excellent. Um, it costs. Uh, some people take it on, some people don't. I think Vanderbilt doesn't have it. What we do instead is that we have done two things. We, have, we do have a, a network of sitters. We incorporate the family. But we also incorporate the physical therapist to do aggressive mobility before and after they leave the ICU during and post-ICU. So the patients who, let me, there's so much to answer in this question, but let me create a scenario for you. If you don't do this ADF bundle in the ICU and you don't aggressively incorporate the physical therapist in the ICU, what happens is that when they get to the floor, they have acquired this new disease. So you've allowed the disease to be created by the lack of an intervention in the ICU and the overpummeling of the brain with the drugs. If you get in there earlier in the unit and you get rid of the drugs and mobilize the patient and create verticalness rather than a patient horizontal in the bed, when they get to the floor, not only haven't they had much less delirium, but their muscles and nerves work in their body. So instead of somebody decrepit and lying in a bed, you have somebody who is much more easily just with their family to get up in bed, walk, get up out of the bed, walk around on the wards and stuff, and they, they go less often to nursing homes and that sort of thing. So I don't think it's only about a sitter in the floor. I think it's about saying, here's a waterfall. You know, this is where we're getting them, on the waterfall. Let's get upstream when the water is calm and pull them out of the river up here as a preventive health program. So I got an MPH. I think this whole thing, which you're about to launch into, is super public health model. But getting them upstream earlier out of the river before they land crashing over the waterfall, which is what you're seeing now and why it's such a disaster. And I hope that helps perspective-wise. I was just curious if the research being done in pediatric is... It really is. The pedi I'm so proud of the pediatric community. They're, they're aggressively pursuing this. You know, um, okay, this will, I'll just finish here in a second and get you guys out of here. Uh, yeah, the pediatric group, is. they've developed all the tools for the ICU. We've got the PCAM now and the PSCAM. You can measure delirium in kids on ventilators. We know that the kids are getting too much in the way of benzodiazepines and sedation, and the kids are scared out of their mind on the ventilator. And they're looking, they're getting out of the ICU with very similar brain dysfunction to the adults with like an acquired ADD. So some of the ADD of the kids is due to hospitalization as, as a child. I know we're late now. Thank you so much for your attention. I'll stay up here for any questions.